Hello and welcome to this brand new episode of The Now World. And today we are joined by Vasilis to talk about a very special subject, namely Cyprus and the issue, ongoing issue on Cyprus, um, possible future solutions. And um, we will update you guys on um, what is exactly going on right now and what you should know. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a great pleasure. Thank you, Elise. Thank you, Valislava, for the invitation. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much for being here with us. All right. I guess that the main question that we have right now for a lot of people that probably don't know what is going on exactly right now or what what is even going on at all on Cyprus, could you please give them uh, a short introduction of what is the actual problem? Maybe some historical background, if you want, just briefly, so we know what we are talking about. And yeah. Yeah. What is happening on the island? So... um... If somebody has to start with some general lines about what the conflict is about. So, first of all, uh, some general particularities that explain the uh, intractable and protracted nature of the Cyprus conflict. First of all, you can see that Nicosia is the last divided capital in the world after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And when it comes to Cyprus, we're talking about one of the oldest non-resolved national and regional conflict. So, for instance, uh, it is ca- the Kashmir conflict is the Korean War and the, um, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. These are the oldest conflicts and Cyprus conflict is classified into the same category with that. The main characteristic of Cyprus is that it has received numerous uh, third-party interventions. So it's not a conflict that has not drawn the international attention in contrast to other conflicts or other wars like the Rwanda war that where the international attention was quite limited uh, and it led to the situation as it led. When it comes to this conflict, it's also one of the success stories of the United Nations in terms of negative peace. But when it comes to actual peace, positive peace, performance is not up to the standards. So Cyprus is uh, located in the eastern Mediterranean and it's really close to countries that are at the center of the world attentions in most cases, like Egypt, like Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, and of course the closest country to um, to Cyprus is, uh, is Turkey. And you realize that this is probably one of the problems uh, in uh, in the situation. Or maybe one of the reasons that there is a problem, this geographical location is uh, very important. And that's why it has always been as, um, a desire of regional countries to, you know, have impact. Exactly. Exactly. So this island has been uh, settled by Mykenians, and this explains also the Greek character of the island. There have been Phoenicians, there have been Assyrians, Egyptians, Persians, Ptolemies, Romans, and also Ottomans. Uh, Ottomans have been uh, living in the island from 1571 until uh, 1878, at least uh this was the um, this is when the Ottoman Empire was um, officially administering the island. After 1878, it was the British that uh, took over the control of the island. Although still, it was annexed uh, in um, in the Ottoman Empire. From 1914 and 1914-1923, it was um, a crown colony of Great Britain. So you can imagine that. All the synthesis of civilizations are crystallized in two main groups. We have uh, the Greeks, or the Greek Cypriots, correctly, and we have the Turkish Cypriots, 
Of course, you can find other people that live on the island, and unfortunately, their voice is not echoed that much as the Greek Cypriots and the Turkish Cypriots. You have Maronites, you have Armenians, and uh, yeah, but unfortunately for them, they do not play a substantial role in the development of the island. But only through the synthesis, you can realize what are the main, let's say, demographic issues uh, that arrived in the island. So when you see the island, it is uh, divided um, since 1974, but I can say also earlier, between uh, the Greek Cypriot administered part, the Republic of Cyprus, which is recognized by the uh, entire international community. It is a member of the United Nations. It is a member of the EU. And you have the so-called Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus, which is not recognized by any member of the international community except for Turkey. So when it comes to the um, historical developments uh, that led to the situation, in this case, a combination of international and domestic factors explained what happened. So as I mentioned before, um, Cyprus uh, has been a, a British crown colony. From 1878 until 1960, the British uh, were trying to establish their dominance in the Eastern Mediterranean. They had also, uh, they were controlling many parts of Egypt. Egypt was, uh, to some extent, semi-controlled by Great Britain, despite the fact that it had already gained its independence. And um, Cyprus was a useful asset for the British because it could safeguard the dominance of the British in, uh, in the seas. And that's why they had also a basis in, in Cyprus. But in order to control the island, and given the fact that the Greek Cypriots had already created a Greek identity, the British did not want to lose the influence of the, uh, on the island. And that's why, in many circumstances, they played the game that many other colonial powers have played in other regions. It's the divide and conquer, divide and rule game. So in this case, for instance, in administrative council, they could create uh, they could they could create administrative council where you would have nine Greek Cypriots, three Turkish Cypriots, and six British officials would go uh, would align themselves with the positions of the Turkish Cypriots. So they would create a nine to nine situation, and no decision could be made in certain situations. Moreover, they had employed also a lot of Turkish Cypriots in the army, as well as in other uh, administrative parts. And this, of course, created a kind of antagonism between Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots, which uh, remained until 1960. So what is the situation? The Greek Cypriots, uh, when the British arrived in the island in 1878, they declared their wish for the unification of the island with Greece. So it's the so-called Enosis. And on the other hand, the Turkish Cypriots did not want that. And the reason why they did not want that was because similar things had happened in Creta. So there were a lot of Turkish or Muslim citizens in Creta. And after the unification of, of Creta with Greece, a lot of people had to leave the island. So in, in many Turkish Cypriots, there, there was this the so-called Creta syndrome, that what happened to the people in Creta would happen to them in Cyprus. And therefore, they wanted, they still treated the... Like fear. Exactly, a fear, a fear, exactly. 
And these fears actually are quite important if we see the development of the history because they outweigh every cost-benefit analysis that we're discussing. So in any case, uh, in 1959-1960, given the situation, actually before we go to 1960, uh, in 1955, when the Greeks realized that they could not go for the Enosis in the diplomatic way, they decided to embark upon an armed struggle. And they created the so-called EOKA, which was fighting against the British, not against the Turkish Cypriots, but eventually, when the Turkish Cypriots were part of the administration, they would fight against them. We are still uh, before 1960, right? Just just so I can follow the narrative. Yes, exactly. We are from 1878 until 1960. There, there, start Okay. And in 1960, we have, um, let's say, some agreements uh, that create the Republic of Cyprus. Okay. The problem with these agreements was that the Greek Cypriots and the Turkish Cypriots were not involved in uh, in the development of these agreements. So, in any case, uh, these agreements led to three treaties. It was the Treaty of Establishment. So, in this case, this laid out the basic structure of the Republic of Cyprus. The problem with this treaty was that while we had a clear majority of the Greek Cypriots, more than 80%, and 18% was the Turkish Cypriots, some powers were given to the uh, Turkish Cypriots. And, of course, this was not highly appreciated by the Greek Cypriots. We had also the Treaty of Guarantee, and the Treaty of Guarantee was actually a paradoxical treaty. So it meant that it was not the Cypriots responsible for the security of their country. It was Great Britain, it was Turkey, and it was Greece. It was the guarantor powers that were responsible for the security of the island. And you can imagine that this is not a colonial concept, but I could say a post-colonial concept of how we understand sovereignty. And we had also the Treaty of Alliance, so which was mainly that all these three parties would ally for the sake of Cyprus. This was mainly a wishful thinking, and these treaties did not last that long. They were not enforced, or I could say that they were enforced in a rather problematic way. The problem was that there was already mutual antagonism between Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots. They had their own national identities. They were checks and balances that were quite problematic. And this led to the um, decision of the first leader of Cyprus at that moment, Makarios, to ask for some amendments. The problem was that when he asked for some amendments, uh, he was not he did not consult Turkey or the Turkish Cypriots. He unilaterally did that. And this, of course, provoked the reaction of both Turkey and Turkish Cypriots, and we had some incidents in 1963. And it was the first time in 1964, one year later, that the United Nations intervened. You said he, he asked for amendments. Whom? He asked amendments to whom? He wanted to do what? So in this case, there was a constitution. So he, he went there, and without actually deliberating beforehand, he went as a leader of Cyprus. He said, he declared he was the leader, and he said that we're going to proceed with amendments in the constitution the constitution of in the treaty of establishment which was the constitution of cyprus and this of course provoked reactions in the turkish side yes i mean he, he actually declared the amendments he mentioned that we need to proceed with amendments after consulting with you know uh, with his own uh, people he said that we need to proceed with amendments and these amendments were interpreted in a negative way by the turkish cypriots and because, you know, they have already managed, they managed to safeguard basic interests. So they did not want to change the existing configuration. Which, are, which, were, not repre which were not representative to the 
percentage of the population that they represented. Exactly. Demographically speaking, yes. But, you know, in the creation of a federation, sometimes the uh, the proportions, the uh, demographic proportions do not matter that much. So that's why they mentioned that this this kind of situation is putting us in danger. This kind of amendments that would enhance the powers of, of the Greek Cypriots. At least this is the way it was interpreted. I think that Makarios, the leader of the Republic of Cyprus, gave some extra rights also to the Turkish Cypriots, but in exchange of other rights for the Greek Cypriots. So I think the historians uh, are much, much more informed on what were the particular amendments uh, in place. I mean, it is it is an important aspect because it was the first time that we had the first uh, acts of violence officially between Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots. And we had uh, the first time that the United Nations was involved. And the reason why the United Nations was not involved was because Cyprus was still part of Great Britain. So only after they gained their independence, the United Nations had uh, a say in the situation. Do not forget that back then, one of the bodies of the United Nations, which still exists, is the so-called Trusteeship Council, which was mainly uh, dealing with the um, with the domestic affairs of the colonies of the countries. So Cyprus, before 1960, was still a British colony. So the United Nations uh, sent some troops in order uh, to create a kind of border between the Greek Cypriots and the Turkish Cypriots in order to stop fighting. Uh, and they wanted also to inspect the deployment of uh, Greek national, Greek Cypriots, Turkish and Turkish Cypriot forces. And they created also a huge buffer zone of 183 kilometers. So, so the buffer zone was there before 74? Yes, yes, there was. It was the so-called green line. It was not the buffer zone as we know it today, but the British had traced um, a green line that was separating the Greek Cypriots and the Turkish Cypriots, and this became afterwards the buffer zone for the United Nations. That we know today, yes. Exactly, as we know it today. But before, there was a green line, and this green line existed still uh, from 1960s. Uh, this green line and the intervention of the United Nations did not manage to stop the armed struggle. The What happened, actually, let's put it this way, is that in 1967, we have the Greek junta, the, the uh, dictatorship in Greece. And the dictatorship in Greece wanted the unification of the island of Cyprus with Greece, despite the fact that this island was an independent uh, state. And the leader of Cyprus did not want any more the unification of the island with Greece, although in the past he declared uh, his will uh, for the unification of the island uh, with Greece in 1960s and 1970s. It was quite clear that Cyprus should remain an independent state. And uh, the Greek dictatorship did not respect that. And they actually militarily intervened. There is also a conspiracy theory, according to which also the US did not want the uh, Greek Cypriot leader because he was doing business with the Soviet Union and more particularly with the Czechoslovakia. And also some kind of discourses about opening to the Third World was not really appreciated uh, in the US, because as a NATO member, they were afraid that this would open the door to the Soviet Union in the the Mediterranean. So the combination of these facts, as I mentioned, this is a conspiracy. So there's still some uh, kind of facts that we need in order to uh, make a certain claim that the United Nations, mm-hmm. that the United States wanted Makarios out of the picture. What happened was that the Greeks militarily intervened. 
And after this military intervention, the Treaty of Guarantees enables one of the countries to militarily intervene for the protection of the island. So Turkey used this as an excuse in order to militarily intervene and occupy 3 or 4% of the island. They start negotiations and before reaching a conclusion, uh, Turkey was not sure whether the Greeks were starting a new campaign in order to militarily intervene and they invade and Turkey makes an invasion and occupies 37, 36.2% of the island. And this happened in 1974. And right now, the buffer zone was established afterwards uh, by the United Nations. There was already the green line, but now it was a buffer zone. Before, you can see that across the island, Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots were living together. Now you have a kind of homogenization, although you can find some Greek Cypriots living in the north and some Turkish Cypriots living in the south. And this situation has, uh, has become even much more complex because today uh, there are many, many aspects in the agenda. The United Nations, from the very beginning, they decided to get involved and find a settlement. The question is, what can this settlement look like? So it is, for instance, about the political system. So shall we talk about a united federal state or should we talk about two, uh, two different confederated states or two sovereign states? We have issues of the three freedoms, about the movement, the settlement or property issues because we should not forget that many Greek Cypriots lost their properties in the north and many Turkish Cypriots or less Turkish Cypriots had some properties that they lost but in numerical terms you know, the losses for the Greek Cypriots outweighed the one of the Turkish Cypriots. Although, from a human being perspective, this doesn't matter. You lose your property, you're a human being, regardless of whether you're a Greek Cypriot or Turkish Cypriot. You have also questions of territorial adjustment. Which parts of the north should go back to the Greek Cypriots? You have security concerns. What are you going to do with the army that is there? What are you going to do with the displaced persons? What are you going to do also with the settlers? What do I mean by settlers? After 1974, Turkey was afraid that, you know, the, the, the part of Cyprus would be subject to further attacks by the Greeks. And that's why they embarked upon an effort to Turkify the island. So what do we mean by the Turkification of the island? They would bring settlers from Anatolia uh, to Cyprus and place them there. And this this policy, this uh, this kind of thinking, violates the Geneva Convention about uh, on human rights. But still, you know, there were strategic interests that were outweighing questions of human rights. And now we find ourselves in an impasse. And this impasse, regardless of where any solution that it can be found, is, uh, is rooted in one, in two basic fears from both sides. Greek Cypriots fear that Turkish Cypriots are the Trojan horse of Turkey. Turkish Cypriots fear that the Greek Cypriots want to make them second-class citizens, meaning that they are they fear that they are not treated as a community by the Greek Cypriots and the international community because they are not recognized, but they are but they are treated as a minority. And this is something that the Turkish Cypriots cannot accept. And uh, the Turkish Cypriots actually had made an effort to uh, gain international recognition. In 1983, they actually went to uh, the uh, the leader of the Turkish Cypriots, back then the deceased leader, uh, Rauf Denktash, said to the world that, you know, 
we're having the so-called Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus as an independent state, despite the efforts of the United Nations to reach a settlement for the unification of the island. Since then, the United Nations has made numerous efforts, extremely ambitious efforts, to unify the island. However, all these efforts have not made. And this again raises the questions about the United Nations doing a good job in terms of negative peace, because since 1974, we don't have any, any armed violence, or at least organized violence. We might have some incidents, but we don't have organized violence from one side to the other. But, of course, we do not have peace. We do not have a unified island or a clear status or, uh, about the future. So you realize that this is a long story, and I don't know how many details uh, should I have omitted or should I have included. And probably I cannot be actually quite objective because... Turkish Cypriots or Greek Cypriots would probably say that, look, you missed this point and this matters uh, for the whole narrative. But you realize that this is a complex story, every conflict. Yes, yes, and that's that, that's very right what you said, that both sides will know details that um, are more known from their side. For example, me growing in the Greek Cypriot um, part, I mean, now when I was listening to you talking, I was like, yeah, but then it's this and then it's that and... Yeah, there are many, many details. And... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a whole. What matters is mm -hmm. that that this kind of details matter a lot because the narratives of the history are creating this, uh, this kind of impasse. For instance, you should ask the Cypriots, when did the conflict start? The Greek Cypriots will say that, you know, the conflict exists since 1974. The Turkish Cypriots will say that, no, it starts from 1963. And then we'll go back to story and we'll say, no, you know, back then you wanted the unification of the island, but we didn't want this then, etc., etc. So in this case, this, and I think that Cyprus in this particular case is not an exception. This is the rule. I guess that the same works also for the Korean conflict, the same works for the Arab-Israeli conflict, the same works also with the Kashmir conflict. It's quite difficult to say when did the story start, when did the conflict start. You don't have a common ground. And more, more importantly, if you ask the people, what is the Cyprus conflict about? You hear two stories. For the Greek Cypriots, the Cyprus conflict is a story of invasion. For the Turkish Cypriots... Uh, it is a story of political equality, that, you know, we have been treated as a minority, although we should be a community. This kind of clashes, this kind of narratives clash the whole time, and it's quite difficult for an external observer to, to understand, okay, what is the problem about? Because another aspect of the problem of the Cyprus conflict, and this is not only applicable to the Cyprus conflict, this is applicable to many other conflicts, is this inconsistency between what the international actors like the United Nations, like the US, like Russia want, and what the domestic actors want. So the international actors want to get rid of the problem. They don't want to hear about the Cyprus conflict. They would just want to, you know, find a solution and that's it. But on the other hand, the people on the ground, the grassroots, want justice. And the problem is that when it comes to the question of justice, it has it is less objective, one way think. The story of justice is quite different for the Greek Cypriots than for the Turkish Cypriots. Uh, yeah, I just want to say that there are two justices. There are two domestic um, opinions, factors. And I think that's why this particularity is what makes the problem so difficult to solve. Because there are so many factors and, and the factors themselves are different, even if... There have been attempts to, to try to prove that. Yeah, um, yeah. 
uh, two sides are similar and everything, they, they, they are different communities. Yes, there are some similarities, but we have to acknowledge that the differences are much more and much more important in their nature. Yeah. Yeah. And that actually leads me to your question as well, because you you spoke about um, how the international community, the main priority of the international community is to solve the issue. Um, and I think an example of this um, was in 2004 when UN, well, former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan introduced the, the Annan plan. And obviously it, the plan failed. Um, but could you first explain, OK, what was exactly that plan and why did it fail? Was it because they didn't take into account the um, perspectives on the ground or was it a different factor that led to that? So the Annan plan was um, providing a Swiss model for Cyprus. So Switzerland is, you know, a country full of cantons. They have their own different nationalities. And it's a country actually that did not get into the United Nations before 1997. So it was a country that due to its neutrality and due to the particularities on its ground, they wanted to keep, let's say, there was no concrete national identity. So based on this model, it was the Swiss model, uh, the Anand plan was providing one common state with formed by two component states. It would be one single international personality holding two citizenships. And uh, the issue was that the people that lost their properties in 1974, they would not be entitled uh, to return, but they should receive a compensation based on the price of the houses that they lost uh, back then. There would be some territorial adjustments, so part of the northern side would go to the Greek Cypriots. It would be parliaments that would be, um, you know, from a senate and uh, a chamber. What was the main issue? For the Greek Cypriots, because it was the um, the plan was rejected by the Greek Cypriots with a resound a resounding no, more than seventy percent. I think it was somewhere between seventy five percent of the people that said no, while the Turkish Cypriots said yes. Why did the Greek Cypriots say no? It was the issue of the guarantees. So the Anand plan did not abolish the Treaty of Guarantees, but they mentioned that the soldiers should go back to the number of soldiers that were provisioned in the Treaty of Guarantees. The Treaty of Guarantees were saying back in 1960s that on the grounds there should be 950 Greeks, Greek troops, and 650 Turkish troops. The problem was that there was no deadline. There was no particular dates that should be met in order to go back to this number. So in this case, right now, at this moment that we're talking, there should be more than 35,000 Turkish troops on the island. And imagine that you don't get any particular deadline on when these troops will be restored to the number of 650. This is one reason uh, why the plan failed, probably. There could be also another reason. Imagine that we're dealing with a conflict that started either in 1963 or in 1974. And you have two people that living on the island under these circumstances. And they have made their living. They have stood on their feet. They're surviving. And probably, especially the Greek Cypriots, have thrived economically as well. Could you tell me a good incentive to go back to the situation of a unified island? What actually are your incentives in order to change? I mean, probably as I could be an idealistic person and I've traveled to Cyprus repeatedly. And I don't like the fact that, you know, when you live in the Netherlands and you go to Belgium, you don't even need an identity in order to go from one country to the other. You can have just your driving license and, you know, you can move from one side to the other. 
But when you're in Cyprus and you try to cross the south to the north, you need to um, stop at the choke points and you need to show your identity, your passport. In the past, they were giving you some kind of visa, no official visa because they are not recognized, a paper with a stamp that you know you just went there. The people have learned to live uh, isolated between each other. And so the incentives have been reduced. And this is, I think, you know, the main reason why the people are not that, let's say, motivated. Of course, you'll hear a lot of Cypriots, Greek Cypriots, saying that I want to, I need the unification. But there is also a, a number of Cypriots that have been, unfortunately, accustomed to the problematic status quo. I think that this status quo is an anomaly. However, if I were there, if I had to live there, if I had to survive there, probably my perspectives would change. So that's why I think that after 30 years, from 1974 until 2004, the incentives to have a unified island have been diminished. But you could actually ask me, okay, and why did the Turkish Cypriots uh, said yes? Because Turkish Cypriots are not recognized by the members of the international community. They are not members of the United Nations, or at least they have an observer status. They are not members of the EU. Although they have the possibility to become members because if they apply for Cypriot citizenship, uh, in this case, they can become Cypriot citizens and they are becoming part of the Republic of Cyprus because the international community is recognizing the entire territory um, of the Republic of Cyprus as being the Republic of Cyprus. However, the people that live in the occupied areas cannot follow the acquis of the EU legislation. And the EU after the failure of the Annan plan, has already put some effort in order to increase the, enhance the relationship, relationships between the occupied areas and, uh, and the EU. However, this, um, these efforts are not quite easy to be enforced because the entire infrastructure of this region depends on the economic and military security provided by Turkey. So this explains to a great extent why the plan failed and given the pre-existing fears that i mentioned before that you know as a greek cypriot as a greek cypriot i do not trust the turkish cypriot because i think he or she is the trojan horse of turkey and on the other hand as a turkish cypriot i do not trust the greek cypriot because he doesn't treat me as a community but he or she treats me as a minority these kind of fears are reflected represented in every legal political difference that you can find in the Cyprus conflict. And there are many. Okay, yeah. So well, log logically, it's a very complex issue with, I mean, a lot of details, a lot of um, different actors that play a role in this. But a question that arises then is why, because Cyprus is a relatively small um, small country. It's, it's not that many people. Why should we care as, as people that maybe have never been to Cyprus? Uh, why should we care about this issue? And uh, why is it of global significance i think it's one of the cases where the geography and the location of the island outweighs you know the humanitarian aspect uh, of the island so in this case for instance if rwanda had the same geographic location like cyprus rwanda would not face the genocide it faced because it didn't have the uh, a location close I mean, it was not located close to the Suez Canal, let's put it this way. So I'll be honest with you. The main reason why Cyprus has drawn so much attention and has received many, many interventions by the United Nations is its location 
close to the Suez Canal. And the Suez Canal, as you realize from the incident that occurred uh, a couple of weeks ago with the Evergreen ship, you realize how important it is. Approximately 30 to 40 percent of EU's oil derives from the Persian Gulf, and it has to cross through some choke points. One of these choke points is the uh, it, it is the Strait of Hormuz, it is the Suez Canal, and it's the Bab al-Mandal. The Suez Canal is quite important when it comes to oil supplies. Cyprus is closely located to this. Any threat to the Suez Canal would actually disrupt the supply of imports on oil in Europe. So imagine that if we have an unstable situation close to Cyprus, the choke point would be probably also in danger. Therefore, they realized that we need, as an international community, to find a stability there. Otherwise, the supply for the West will be in danger. So this is, I think, one of the main reasons why it has drawn so much attention. Plus, you know, again, the location. It's close to Syria. So if I were British and French and I wanted to militarily intervene in Syria in one way or the other, Cyprus provides the bases. British have two sovereign bases in Cyprus. So they could use these bases, you know, in order to embark upon some uh, military initiatives. The French have also made use of it, and they have signed also many military agreements. Again, the location matters. And unfortunately, the geopolitical position of Cyprus has outweighed any other humanitarian aspects. This is positive and negative, because if Cyprus did not have this kind of location, probably if this incident had occurred, the international community would not have this vested interest in settling the conflict, or at least in intervene. So that's why I think that this explains to a great extent why Cyprus matters. Of course, this is not the only reason, because as an, I mean, from an international law perspective, it's quite important to see, you know, what goes wrong with this kind of conflicts. And of course, although we want to say that, you know, the Cyprus conflict is unique, it shares many characteristics with the conflict in Kashmir, with the conflict in, uh, in the Arab-Israeli conflict, with the, um, with the Korean conflict. Although the good aspect for Cyprus, due to the international intervention, is that we don't have the number of fatalities we have seen in all the other conflicts. So I don't know if this addresses your question or you'd like me to elaborate more on this. No, I think I think that's um, that's enough. I mean, it makes clear sense, and yeah. it, it it's true. It's the reality that exists um, in the region. So, um, next question: What are the solutions? What what can we do? What what is um, what has been proposed? Uh, after two thousand four, there had been some efforts in order to relaunch the negotiations, and I think that these efforts we were quite close to strike a deal in uh, in 2017. I don't know how much deliberation were, was proceeded before we reached this, but in 2017, rumor said that Turkey was open to discuss the Treaty of Guarantees and its intervention rights in Cyprus, which was a huge game changer for the Cypriots. It was something that was not discussed in the past. But unfortunately, disagreements on, on the guarantees, meaning, okay, you say that you'll do this, could you actually put this, uh, can you write this down? This kind of safeguards were not put in place and that's why we faced another deadlock in 2017. Since 2017, we're dealing with an impasse. There has been no in organized initiative to restore the discussions. There was this meeting uh, recently. Uh, I think it, um, 
It ended yesterday with declaration with actually the announcement of Gutierrez, the UN Secretary General, mentioning that the road for a common ground in Cyprus is elusive. So I think that the gap since 2017 has broadened and the discussion is not about the blueprint of the uh, of the Cyprus conflict. The blueprint has been in general a bizonal, bicommunal federation. This is the key idea. This is how the future state should look like according to the United Nations. The problem is how each side was interpreting this bizonal, bicommunal federation. This was forgiven from 1974 until 2017. Since 2017, this is not probably the common ground upon which Greek, Greek Cypriots, Turkey and Turkish Cypriots agree. Turkey and Turkish Cypriots have changed the narrative. The current leadership, at least of the Turkish Cypriots, uh, Santa Tara, they talk about a two-state solution. This could be either a confederation, a loose association of two federated states, much looser than provided by the Anand plan, or It could be two states, two states. And Turkey has embarked some, upon some efforts to internationally recognize the so-called Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus as a state. As, for instance, in the organization Islam, for the conference, it's called the OIC. So it's the Organization Islamic Conference, if I recall correctly. But many states who are doing business with the Turkish Cypriots do not want to do this. Uh, they have not recognized them as a state, but they're doing business, meaning that they, there are no embassies except for Turkey in the uh, in the breakaway regime, because it would be a huge game changer. However, if this is the outcome of an agreed solution, probably we might see a recognition. But believe me, I do not want to see this happening, because I still would like to see, you know, uh, to uh, entertain many other possibilities. What is the solution? I think that we have got already, uh, we have got the whole thing wrong, meaning that we consider, we thought that the solutions are top-down, so which means that, you know, we come up with a solution on the top, at, at the leadership level, and then we have, we need the people following it while some solution could emerge from bottom-up. The problem in Cyprus is the distrust. And you know you cannot uh, trust the people that you're not transacting with. So what types of cooperation, of everyday activities have been developed in the island of Cyprus? Let's say common electricity or common water supplies or common things that, you know, they make the cooperation inevitable. So if you do not depend on the other. If you don't care about the other, you don't have actually any incentives, you know, to work with them. If, however, in terms of electricity or water, you realize that your existence depends on the existence of the other, then you might change your mindset. But these kind of projects do not exist. There have been some efforts, there have been some um, low politics efforts to, uh, to strengthen the cooperation. There have been some cultural initiatives. The problem, however, is that, you know, Most Greek Cypriots do not care about the Turkish Cypriots. Most Turkish Cypriots do not care about the Greek Cypriots because there are no vital things that connect them, like water, like electricity, like other things. So this kind of projects that could involuntarily make the people coexist, these kind of things do not exist. And this, to a great extent, explains why the people could still um, comply with this insufficient status quo. We know that the status quo is not functional. However, it still persists. I don't know for how long, but it still persists because the people could not could have made peace with this situation.
The problem is that if, since a solution was not reached immediately after the conflict, it would be quite questionable and difficult to find a solution 30, 40, 50 years later. You need an entire change of the world in order to actually see this happening. So that's why if I had to come up with a solution is that if you do not reach a settlement, at least find a way to make the people live with each other, their neighbors, either, either they like it or not. So they need to find a way, at least the people, to uh, live with each other. I think what lacks, I mean, from what, I mean, growing up there, from what I've seen is, is it lacks the willingness from people to cooperate with each other. And, and not only from the Greek uh, Cypriot side, but also from the Turkish Cypriot side. It lacks, is this distrust? Um, okay, I don't want to talk about hater, even if it is present. Um, but yeah, and, and, when, and when this very essential thing, the willingness and the um, wanting to cooperate with, uh, with the other lacks, then it's very hard to enforce it. Um, you know, uh, I had a friend, a friend of mine had written her master thesis on the demographic characteristics of the Anand plan. What were the groups that rejected the Anand plan? And we had this kind of paradox. You would expect that the people that had um, gone through the armed conflicts would be the ones, due to their experiences, saying no to the plan. Unfortunately, it was the young people that said no to the plan. I mean, the people that back then were 18 to 30 years old. Because all these people are raised, you know, from their fathers and their grandfathers about the stories, about the atrocities that Turkish authorities and Turkish Cypriot authorities committed on the one hand. And on the other hand, they're also quite indifferent. If, you know, you have your car, if you have, you know, a good status quo, if your economy was thriving, at least until 2011, since then things have been much worse. Due to the crisis. Exactly, yes, due to the crisis after 2011. Until then... You know, you had an economy thriving. The Greek Cypriots stood on their feet. They did really well. They were one of the strongest economies in Europe. So, and they had also, before the introduction of the euro, the pound, the Cypriot pound, was one of the strongest currencies. So, what was the actual incentive, you know, to live in a situation that is quite unknown and uncertain to you? And you have no idea. While the grandfathers had lived with Turkish Cypriots, they were on same territories, either in the north or in the south. So in this case, some of them or most of them wanted the unification because, you know, they, they learned how it was. But the young generation did not have this kind of experiences. And what they heard from their fathers and grandfathers was about the atrocities. So in this case, could you actually provide me with a good reason why you should go back to a situation that is uncertain to you? And also, I mean... Because even when the United Nations, through the all the IMF, on the World Bank, they came up with really good plans about the economic benefits of a solution. Because also the Greek Cypriots were, were afraid that, you know, the unification of the island would be paid, supported economically by the strong economic part. For instance, with the unification of Germany, the Western Germany had to pay, you know, had to financially support uh, the, uh, the 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 East Germans in order to find a convergence between the different economic status. 
So the Greek Cypriots were afraid that this would be also the case for them. The United Nations, the IMF and the World Bank had provided plans showing that no, you will not take over this plan. But again, even if this is the case, these rational calculations matter, but they do not matter that much as the fears uh, that, you know, that are shaping the mindsets of the people on the one hand, as well as the uncertainty that could emerge after a potential solution. Right now, you have a problematic status quo, but you know what it is. After you the unification, you don't know what it is. You don't know what you're going to encounter. So that's why we human beings act in some cases much more incrementally rather than rationally, thinking that, you know, we need to adjust to the situations. It's not like that, because you have all these fears, you have all these historical experiences that show you that, you know, you're safer here rather than something uncertain. And therefore, we still face this this kind of impasse. At least, based on my own interpretation. I think I think it's the uncertainty. From I mean, okay, there are solutions um, proposed, but once they're um, enforced uh, and put in practice, there is uncertainty. And even if uh, you know, political scientists, um, economists try to predict what's going to happen, you still don't know. You still don't know how you don't know and how people on the ground will be impacted. Yeah, if you don't have the crystal ball to envision the future, it's quite difficult actually to make these uh, calculations. Yeah, that's it exactly. That you cannot you cannot predict it, and that that even makes it even more complex and more difficult. Ay, ay, ay. Uh, how about the gas resources in two thousand eleven? I mean, you wrote your PhD thesis on that. Um, how is this involved in the, the whole issue? So, uh, in 2011, uh, Noble Energy, uh, that is uh, um, uh, an American-Israeli uh, company, company operating uh, both in Israel as well as in Cyprus, uh, discovered an important amount of gas reserves. A lot of international actors, uh, the United States, but also the EU, thought that this could act as the peace catalyst of the island. But again... The problem was that the gas reserves were treated, were viewed through the lens of the pre-existing antagonism. So energy that could be treated as an economic commodity, it was treated as a question of sovereignty. So the Greek Cypriots said that, look, what we're going to do is that we're going to give you something to you to the Turkish Cypriots. But, you know, when it comes to the question of decision making about which companies are going to get involved, about how we're going to uh, delimit our um maritime zones with the other countries it's our own business because this is a question of sovereignty so that's why you can see that on the other hand the turkish cypriots were afraid that you know if we let the greek cypriots do what they do then after the unification of the island we will they will have created a precedent and we need to conform to this precedent and therefore the turkish cypriots signed the limitation agreements with turkey although their legal entity is quite questionable. And they also invited a Turkish company, Tpau, to drill, and also on areas that encroach on the exclusive economic zone of the Republic of Cyprus. So it is quite ideal, uh, you know, to talk about uh, gas users creating a peace platform. So, for instance, an idea of a pipeline from, um, from the Republic of Cyprus to Turkey. This would be ideal, indeed. But, you know, 
there's no such thing like peace pipelines. So it would be quite strange to say to the Ukrainians, oh, okay, let's create another pipeline with Russia and your problems will be resolved. This is a bit naive. If the pre-existing problems have not been resolved, yeah, it would be quite naive to say this. So therefore, the problem with, uh, with the gas reserves is that it has been viewed through the lens of the conflict. It was viewed as a question of sovereignty yeah. and not as an economic commodity. And this, of course, the gas reserves had is also part of a bigger game, a bigger game in the area. Uh, and this touches upon the question of geopolitics. What we see in the Eastern Mediterranean is probably the outcome of what I, what I call a power vibe. The United States, after they discovered a huge amount of uh, natural resources in the Gulf of Mexico, they wanted to gradually withdraw from the Middle East, which was an area uh, that could provide them with adequate supplies. And in 2010, many military troops had to leave Iraq. And the question of the U.S. Middle East strategy was going through revisions. The United States wanted to remain involved in the region, but not as much involved as in the past. So the fact that the U.S. was gradually with um, reducing its presence in the Eastern Mediterranean creates a power vacuum. And, and you know, according to physics, every power vacuum needs to be filled. One way to fill them is, for instance, the cooperation between Israel, Cyprus, Egypt, and Greece. Although, you know, the four countries are not together, but still there were some energy triangles. And on the other hand, it's Turkey. Turkey finds a good momentum to project its own power. They want to show that, look, you know, we have a different boss here. I'm the boss and you cannot make any decisions without asking me for them because I'm I'm the country with the biggest coast in the region. And this explains to a great extent also Turkey's involvement. So the gas reserves is part of a more complicated game. It's partially a question of the Cyprus issue. I wish, you know, that the conflict would have been resolved and in that case the gas reserves could financially support the unification of Cyprus. But unfortunately, this, the gas reserves has been viewed through the lens of the pre-existing conflict. And how can we see this? Based on the discourses I've seen in my own research, I saw that when I asked the people about this, I mean, why did you not find a way to involve Turkish Cypriots in the decision-making? They first mentioned correctly that, you know, this is a question of sovereignty. I'm not going to share my competences with a successionist entity. That's one. Number two. Even if I wanted to, let's assume that I bring the Turkish Cypriots in a decision-making body on the gas reserves. The Turkish Cypriots are going to bring Turkish interest. They're going to drag Turkish interest there. It's not that I'm going to consult with the Turkish Cypriots. I'm going to deal with Turkey. So this shows that if I bring Turkish Cypriots, I'm keeping the energy program hostage to Turkish priority in the island. So, and you can see similar narratives also from the Turkish Cypriot side. I think that goes back to the Trojan horse that we were talking about before, that uh, Greek Cypriots see uh, Turkish Cypriots and the Turkish Cypriot uh, Republic of Cyprus as, as a Trojan horse on the island of Turkey. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, you, when, you, when something new happens to you and, you know, a crisis occurs, you try in order to make sense of the crisis, in order to ask yourself, okay, what the heck is happening here? You try to interpret it through the pre-existing lenses you have. So, and these lenses are your experiences and the way you have it interpreted your experiences. This is the schema that you need in order to say that now things make sense. So the same situation with the gas reserve, which is something new, 
that happened in 2011, is interpreted through the same lenses, the lenses of this antagonism of the competition. So it's not that you have a culture of cooperation, that you will say that, ah, I cooperated quite nicely in the past year, and therefore this should navigate me throughout my cooperation in this field. You can see that although historians do not want they don't want to hear that history repeats itself. Indeed, they are correct in saying this. However, you can identify similar patterns. So you correctly mentioned the Trojan horse. This is actually what they told me. We're not going, we're, we're not, we do not trust Turkish Cypriots in the energy uh, program because they will act as the Trojan horse of Turkey. And probably this is correct. I'm not saying that this is incorrect. But on the other hand, what is the game changer? I mean, one question that kind of, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult question. And obviously, it's, it's a really complicated issue. And we already spoke about many of the aspects of the issue. But I guess that one issue that many people would like to know about is how do you see the future of, of Cyprus and of the conflict? You, you, based on your experience, based on your research, yeah. as, um, yeah. I'm not optimistic. I'm not optimistic. I don't know. I mean, when the recent meeting uh, happened. I mean, we had a meeting in Geneva, the the, the five plus one, meaning the um, uh, Turkey, Turkish Cypriots, Greek Cypriots, uh, and Greece and uh, the UK, which are exactly it's all the exactly the United Kingdom, correct? There was no deliberation beforehand, and while the blueprint before was the bizonal by communal federation. And there were all these kind of disagreements about this. Today, we're not even talking about this. We're talking about whether we should, uh, whether we have a two-state solution, or I don't know, a loose federation. So things have gone worse. I mean, in many cases, if you do not tackle a problem from the very beginning and you let it grow, then the management of the problem bears a huge cost. And of course, this type of problems become wicked problems. So when you let them grow, then you have a much more managerial aspect. You have a much more managerial perspective, how to manage the problem and less incentives to actually solve the problem because solving the problem uh, bears a huge cost. So I'm afraid that this narrative of the two-state solution might start um, playing, might be placed high on the agenda. And we start discussing about this. I hope I get it wrong. Let's put it this way. My sheer hope is that I get it wrong, that I don't see it correctly. But I think that such narrative resonates also a lot with how the people have experienced the situation on the island. Before going to Cyprus, I was quite an optimistic person. I could see, you know, the headlines uh, from uh, from the international news outlets, from Economist, from Foreign Policy and other things, showing that, look, there is a wind of change blowing the island because we discovered the gas reserves. And I went to the island and I said that, no, people, the people do not actually, are not that incentivized to solve the conflict. Did I meet the wrong people? I don't know. I don't know. But I didn't see this enthusiasm, this, you know, this uh, this energy to have. There were just few people, indeed there are some few people, that want the unification uh, of, of the island. But the vast majority of the people, they have made peace with this, with this status quo. And I think that this is the biggest mistake, that, you know, the whole structure of having, you know, the leaders talking there. And, you know, while the people are quite accustomed to the situation, and they don't see that this is a problem. What we miss in Cyprus 
is what, uh, what William Zartman calls a mutually hurting stalemate. Let's put it aptly. Even if, you know, if you, this kind of things, if this stalemate does not bear a huge cost for you, in this case, let's be honest, you can make your peace with that. You know that this is quite problematic, or at least you don't care whether this is problematic. But if we miss a mutual hurting stalemate, in this case, we cannot have a solution uh, in the conflict. And therefore, in the past, when the crisis erupted in Cyprus, the economic crisis, there was some kind of deliberation I could see between the lines that probably right now, due to the crisis, this is a good situation right now since the pocket of the Greek Cypriots is hurting. Let's find the good momentum to ask for extra incentives to solve the conflict. But it didn't It didn't work out because at the end of the day, the Greek Cypriots quickly adjusted to the situation. They showed an amazing resilience and, uh, you know, they followed through and right now they they have been recovered to a great extent, not to the pre-2011 levels, but they are much better. So this this kind of strategy, did not, this thinking did not pay off and it was never implemented. But there was a discourse because I remember hearing many people, policymakers, saying uh, that Cyprus was correctly admitted to the Eurozone, but it was incorrectly admitted to the EU because, you know, because of the rejection of the Anand plan that coincided with the Cypriot admission to the EU. So I'm not, um, no, I'm not, op- I'm not optimist. And this is also my, um, of the, uh, of my PhD that, yeah, I- I'm not supposed to uh, mention this kind of things, but I'm afraid that we have missed so many opportunities. I, I completely, I completely agree with you. I, yeah, knowing the reality and, uh, how different the two communities have become, and also seeing the new, the, the the young people, how um, they don't. Most of them they don't care. I mean, um, very few, very few from my friends um, are actually know actually what's going on. Very few people knew that there was this meeting uh, two days ago, and and it's sad because this is very important and it will have impact for us, for the young people. And it's yeah, I don't know. Unfortunately, agree. I mean, unfortunately, in many countries, we this is also an issue of um, representativeness. So, when the Adnan plan was rejected uh, by seventy-five percent, the two big parties in Cyprus, the the the, the right wing uh, or the centre right wing and the communist Akel, most of its members were in favour of the Adnan plan. And, of course, these two parties, two big parties, are representing the vast majority of the Cypriot population. You know, the people said no, which means that while the leaders, some of the leaders at least, would, uh, would like to see a settlement, some of them, I'm not saying all of them, definitely not all of them, the vast majority of the people uh, have been quite cut off of the process. And I think that, you know, the whole structure of how the discussion on, on Cyprus is unfolding is highly problematic. I'll be quite cynic in this respect. I think that it has been quite an elitistic process. So it's really nice that you have all these leaders, uh, you know, uh, sitting down, discussing, deliberating, while no forms of practical cooperation is provisioned among the people. So the stalemate and, you know, the status quo continues as it is, the people do not bear a cost because of the continuation. So that's it.
I also I also feel I mean since I came to to the Netherlands to study and I see how people actually people who are actually involved in politics how they see the Cypriot issue I feel like everyone who is not from the island who hasn't had lived through the experience through they see it as um, case study a problem that we have to solve. We have to find the best solution in the, the most liberal, uh, in the dominant theoretical lens that um, exists. And that's it. And, but, but the people that live there, I mean... Yeah, definitely. The two, and not only uh, the Greek Cypriot side, the, the, this is not just a, a political case study that has to be found, that there has to be found um, the best solution uh, in theory. It, it's, it's the practice that matters because there are much bigger problems that can be produced if both communities are not taking into consideration. If you do not experience these issues, you cannot understand how... I mean, we people try to see these things through our own lenses. So, for instance, um, there has been a huge discussion. Many Greeks are complaining about the um, the the attitude of the EU uh, vis-à-vis uh, Greece and Cyprus, that you know uh, the EU does not take uh, our concerns into consideration. Let's assume that there is a conflict or there is a, you know, a danger in the Baltic Sea, in Lithuania, in Latvia, in Estonia, that are facing valid threats from Russia. Would Greece send army to the Baltic states? Would they actually do something about this? Let's be honest. I don't think that we would do this. Of course, it was really nice for us to complain about the EU. And I'm not saying that, you know, the EU has done a, a good job. Actually, the EU has a hands-off policy. It is the United Nations that matters. The EU cannot play an influential role. But, you know, I, I'm quite cautious when I'm expressing these complaints because, first of all, I know that the EU does not have army. Let's start with this. So in this case, it's not a sovereign entity in order to react the way it should react when it comes to these borders. It's probably a much more normative thinking, an idealistic thinking, rather than empirical thinking. And on the other hand, uh, you know, I'm trying to put myself into the shoes of somebody who experiences similar threats. A person from Latvia, from Estonia, from uh, Lithuania. You know, they also experience threats. But you know, who's going to actually deal with Russia in that region. So that's also an issue. And I can understand, for instance, the student that has not experienced this kind of situation. Probably a student that comes from uh, countries that are experienced conflicts, they can see the similarities of the Cyprus conflict with uh, with their own conflict. Because indeed, we all, all sometimes we mention that, you know, every conflict is unique. Yes, it is unique because, you know, you have unique experiences. However, when you try to use interpretive lenses, you can identify a lot of similarities. So, because, you know, when it comes to the questions of grievance, grievance exists in Cyprus, but they exist also in Sudan. They can exist also in uh, in Ajay, in Indonesia, or they could exist in, in, the, in Korea. They exist. What type of grievances is a different story, but they exist. So that's why I can understand that the students that are not from this region, they do not have a stake. And I cannot ask them, you know, to be to show more empathy. Because at the end of the day, if they don't lose their property, if they don't miss a person because of a war, they cannot understand how it is. So it's, yeah, I mean, I 
had this cynic approach. And that's why, you know, when I was doing, because my first class ever was about the Cyprus conference. It was um, back in 2012 when Joris Vorhofer, the former Minister of Defense in the Netherlands, he was teaching a course, Peace Building After Conflict. And, you know, I just wanted to do a presentation to get rid of, you know, the class with a topic that I was already familiar with. So, the Palestinian conflict. Let's say, okay, I'll just do this. I have, you know, my, my material ready and this is it. And said, no, you're going to talk about the Cyprus conflict because you speak some Turkish and you're Greek. I say, okay, let's try this. And, you know, he assigned a 10 to the presentation and you realize for the Dutch, 10 is something like, you know, it's just a god that uh, gets a 10. And I realized, wow, this is actually an interesting topic that they should further investigate. And I realized what kind of stakes he had in the region, not personally him, but I, I gradually understand why the Cyprus conflict matters. But I cannot expect that every student should care about this conflict. Yeah, but I think that's also like this question, the fact that we are talking about this right now, that I think that would already help so many people understand it better. And of course, it's different than living the experience. But I do hope that at least the people listening to this um, have now received or gotten a better idea of, of what the conflict is like, what the stakes are, and what the implications are for the people on the ground as well. Yeah. I think that was also our main goal. Yes, for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I would really like to thank you so much for providing us with this really, I mean, comprehensive overview of of this super interesting topic. And it's it's a complicated topic and we could speak about it all day. Um, but I do think you have given us a, quite a comprehensive uh, view of what is going on in the issue. And I think especially for people that might not or didn't know any, much about it uh, beforehand have definitely learned a lot. Um, so I would really like to thank you a lot for that. I knew in the issue, I know more now. I can imagine for someone who <laughs> didn't know anything. I mean, that's a very, was very nice description. Yeah. And a lot of details, <laughs> important things uh, that matter. Yeah, thank you very much. It was amazing i would like to thank you for the invitation i hope i mean uh, i'm really sorry that i was too wordy probably that i provided a lot of details no, so no. this is you know no, but that's necessary uh, but I, that, that, that's necessary. Yeah, I, I don't know I, I wish you know there are some other people that have this charisma to uh, mention some things in a few words <laughs> unfortunately when it comes to the cyprus conflict that due to the interesting questions uh, that you set forth uh, I had to, you know, uh, recall a lot of things. And that's why I hope that what I said would help you create a view over the conflict, a comprehensive view. And that's why I wish, I wish that, you know, that some key messages have been delivered. But I would like to congratulate you on your initiative. Thank you very much. And I hope that, you know, when we're going to talk about the Cyprus conflict will be just about history and a solution will be reached. However, this is wishful thinking and uh, this is not based, you know, uh, this is an aphorism not based yeah. on the experience so far. Yeah, it's it's a sad reality, I guess, but uh, we, we can keep hoping <laughs> to end it on a positive note. <laughs> exactly, exactly. All right, thank you so much.